Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about liver cancer with Dr. Stacy Stein. Dr. Stein is an associate professor of internal medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Stacy, you know, we don't know a whole lot about liver cancers. Uh, we certainly talk a lot about breast cancer and colon cancers. Um, but tell us a little bit more about how we think about liver cancers. Yeah, so, you know, I you're right. I don't think it gets the same attention as some other cancers do, you know, in the public. But I think it's a really important cancer to talk about because it's actually one of the few cancers that's still on the rise in our country. Um, you know, some people might be familiar with some of the traditional um, causes of cirrhosis, which cause liver cancer. Um, you know, worldwide, this is a very prevalent cancer, um, especially because of hepatitis B, um, mothers passing it on to their babies. In the United States, we see more people um, that have developed cirrhosis from hepatitis C or alcohol use. Um, but another cause is actually on the rise in, in the United States that we don't talk about a lot. Um, and that is um, something called NASH cirrhosis, which is related to uh, the obesity epidemic. And um, we are seeing that more commonly now. And I think it's something important that, you know, people are more aware of and, and primary care physicians are more aware of to screen their patients. So how how exactly do they do that? I mean, and is that the same concept of fatty liver that we sometimes hear about? And is there a screening for it? And if so, what is that? Yeah, so, you know, often, um, you know, who is at risk for, for those kind of factors? So it's people that are older that may have obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, right? So a lot of these common diagnoses that travel together. And then you know, it's also not uncommon for people with all these diagnoses to be on several medications treating them. And then they may have blood work where their liver enzymes are a little bit out of range, but I think it usually gets ascribed to maybe a side effect of one of the medications that they're on instead of thinking about, you know, underlying liver disease. Um, and so it's important when we see, you know, elevations in liver enzymes um, to be thinking that this might be a primary liver issue. Hmm. Interesting. And so, you know, because we, we've talked on this show so much and on others about how there really is this obesity epidemic and, you know, over 40%, some people even say over 50% of our population are overweight or obese. Um, so how often should you be getting those liver enzymes checked? And if they are abnormal, what should ensue? 
Yeah, that's a good question. You know, so I think the screening needs to be updated. You know, most of the screening and efforts in the, um, you know, hepatology guidelines really focus around, which is still very important, right? Screening people for hepatitis B and hepatitis C, because we have treatment now for hepatitis C, um, you know, and we have treatment for um, not curative, but we have suppressive treatment for hepatitis B. Um, And really, you know, the question is then who should we be screening, um, you know, for this? Nash cirrhosis, um, you know, the guidelines are not um, completely set the same way as they are for these other causes. But I think certainly, you know, when you see someone that's having elevated liver enzymes or potentially decreased platelets, that could be a sign of portal hypertension, you know, or people have had imaging for other reasons and you find changes that um, are consistent with cirrhosis, I think it's important to really go down the path of fully working that up, Um, you know, but I don't think the guidelines are really clear yet of how we screen for NASH cirrhosis, but I think it's going to be important to kind of, you know, give better direction to, to people in primary care about that. Yeah. What about, you know, you mentioned that there there's good screening for hepatitis B and C. And, you know, certainly we, we have vaccines for both of those. Um, but let's talk a little bit about um, how we screen for, for those hepatitides as well. I mean, should that be something that should be routine at your doctor's office? How frequently should that happen? Um, or is that something that you only really screen for if you're at risk of getting those hepatitides and, and what are those risk factors? Right. So, um, you know, in the United States, all babies are given a series of hepatitis B vaccines. Um, so it's really more of an issue of screening people that were not born in this country. Um, especially Asian populations, um, where the numbers are the highest, uh, for hepatitis C, you know, it's recommended that especially everyone from the baby boomer generation is screened at least once. Um, and, um, and then certainly, you know, if there's any concern for a more acute liver process, um, that could be repeated. Um, and there are initiatives, um, you know, through primary care and especially through the VA system where unfortunately there's a large Um, burden of hepatitis C to really make sure that everyone um, is screened at least, you know, once um, because we do have treatment uh, now, which is important to, you know, make sure that that's started in a timely fashion. And so screening is just a routine blood test, right? Routine blood test, easy to do. Okay. And so, so if you haven't had uh, a blood test and and you're, you're in that baby boomer generation or you uh, have been born in another country, it's a good idea then to at least get checked and see if you have one of these two hepatitides, uh, which may put you at risk of developing uh, liver cancer. So let's talk a little bit about you know, that next step when you were talking about how if your liver enzymes are elevated, that should really spur people on to thinking about liver cancer as a potential cause for that. So, you know, aside from an abnormal blood test of your liver enzymes being elevated, are there other symptoms that people should be looking for in terms of liver cancer or can it be completely asymptomatic? Yeah, so that's a good question. You know, so what's so interesting about liver cancer is that it's so tied to 
cirrhosis, an underlying liver disease. And so those two things obviously are separate, but but also very related. So, you know, the symptoms of the cancer may not be traditional symptoms people people think about. We don't have a lot of nerve endings in inside the liver. So often people don't feel a difference necessarily the way someone might feel a mass somewhere else in their body. And unless there's really tumor pressing on the capsule of the liver where there are a lot of nerve endings, they probably won't feel any different. You know, so a lot of the screening really winds up being identifying the people at risk of for cirrhosis and identifying cirrhosis and then looking at that group and screening them with imaging for liver cancer because we know that the cure rate and the and the success at treatment is better the earlier we can find it so you know for patients that present with a single liver lesion and they have good liver function, they could be candidates for surgery where the tumor is able to be removed. For some patients who have still pretty limited disease and they may also have some cirrhosis, um, you know, or declining liver function, they may be, and there's a lot of rules surrounding this, but they could potentially be candidates for a liver transplant that could also be a curative option. But if the cancer is found later, you know, then we don't have those kind of options and we have to then think about, you know, other treatments. So, so really it's important to find it at an early stage as with so many cancers. So tell us a little bit about the imaging that needs to happen. You may be feeling completely asymptomatic. You hear this on the radio and you decide to go and see your doctor because maybe you are overweight or maybe you, um, you know, you have been, uh, had, having a history of uh, alcohol in the past and and are worried about cirrhosis or maybe maybe you've been screened for hepatitis B or C and your doctor does that screening test and says yeah you know your your liver function studies are a little bit abnormal what imaging tests are the next thing that you should expect in order to try to find a liver cancer early Right. So there's a few ways to image the liver. So sometimes for screening, they start with just an ultrasound, which is, um, you know, pretty easy to get non-invasive. There's a probe that's put over the abdomen and kind of pushed on. And then there's, um, you know, images that that show up and they could often find um, changes of cirrhosis and, and possible tumor there. Um, you know, when we're really concerned that there is cancer and we best want to characterize it, um, the best imaging, what's considered the gold standard is really an MRI. Um, and for patients that are not able to get an MRI for one reason or another, um, we're able to do a CAT scan um, with something called triphasic imaging, where we're able to get a, a very good look at the liver also. Um, so so most patients, once once there's any con, real you know real concern or they're in surveillance, um, they're usually getting an MRI and if not a, a CAT scan. And so, what's the next step after that? A biopsy? Yeah. So so a biopsy. That's an excellent question. You know, for every cancer, I think most patients would identify a biopsy as being the next step, right? So if we have imaging that's concerning, typically. You know, as oncologists, we we always order a biopsy for cancers, and that really gives us the definitive answer. Interestingly, in the history of um, liver cancer, um, the imaging has been so good at looking at um, 
specific characteristics of the cancer that traditionally you have not needed a biopsy to identify um, HCC or hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, you know, we've been challenging that a little bit more recently because, um, you know, there's a lot of caveats where you could have mixed tumors of bile duct cancers with, with HCC um, or, you know, as tumor profiling is becoming more um, commonly used, um, you know, we really like to have tissue, um, a biopsy so that we could do these molecular tests. And so it has become more common um, to have a biopsy before we start treatment. But I would say historically, you know, a lot of patients wind up getting treated for liver cancer in the absence of a biopsy, which is which is definitely uh, unusual as compared to other cancers. Yeah. And, and I guess the other thing that is unique about the liver or somewhat unique is that it's a good place for cancers that start in other places to go, um, not just as a place for cancers to arise de novo. Um, how can you tell the difference between a primary cancer, a primary liver cancer that starts and grows up in the liver, uh, often in a cirrhotic liver, versus a cancer that started somewhere else, say in the colon or, right. or, or somewhere else a and goes to the liver? A lot of cancers metastasize to the liver. And so that's always the first question when you see a mass in the liver. Did it start there or did it spread there from, from somewhere else? So the imaging does help with that. Um, you know, if you do what's called this triphasic imaging, so you know, when the contrast is injected into someone, they look at certain phases, right? So that the liver has two blood supplies. Um, there's a blood supply from arteries and from veins. So the liver is unique in that way. And there's kind of a characteristic um, appearance that is different between metastases and, and liver cancer. But that being said, sometimes the imaging is not as clear and you, you don't feel confident that you know. And that's really where a biopsy, um, I think, is really helpful. Yeah. And so once you get that biopsy, you can figure out, is this a primary cancer? Is this a secondary cancer? Um, and hopefully get a little bit more in terms of clues that can help you to treat it. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, and also what's interesting is that, um, you know, liver cancer can, it can occur as a single, you know, tumor, um, which is what happens in most cancers, right? Most cancers start out as a single tumor and then can spread. You know, with liver cancer, sometimes it's what's called multifocal disease, meaning that it's not really one area that's spread to other areas, but that because of the cirrhosis, you could think of the whole liver as being at risk for developing tumor. And so sometimes there's actually more than one area at the same time that has, um, you know, developed a tumor. Yeah. Well, we're going to dig into all kinds of uh, aspects in terms of the qualities of tumors in the liver and how we go about treating them right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about liver cancer with my guest, Dr. Stacy Stein. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about head and neck cancers. 
Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Stacy Stein. We're talking about GI cancers and particularly liver cancer. And right before the break, we talked a little bit about all of the risk factors that can really put you at risk of developing primary liver cancer, which can be uh, an isolated event or it could be uh, multifocal. So, Stacy, you know, when we talk about liver cancers, how often um, are these, you know, found as a single spot in the liver versus more extensive disease? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it really depends on, you know, which group of people you're looking at. For patients who have you know, known that they have underlying risk factors and they've been getting screens, they're much more likely to be found with early disease. But I would say, unfortunately, you know, I see patients all the time who present with much more advanced disease because, um, you know, they either were not being followed by anyone or they didn't realize that they had cirrhosis. Um, and so they could present with disease that's already, you know, not um, eligible for surgery or transplant, the disease may have metastasized already. Um, And so we certainly see, you know, people that have either presented with disease very late or, or after treatment for early disease, the disease has progressed. Yeah. And as we talked about before the break, I mean, certainly it's always better if you can find cancer early uh, when it's most treatable and when, you know, either surgery or local therapies are are an option to get rid of the, the primary nidus of cancer. But when that cancer is locally advanced or even metastatic when it's spread and those local therapies are no longer an option, um, well, do we still have options to treat these patients? Absolutely. And that's really the area that I've been most focused in. You know, I'm very lucky at Yale to have a fantastic um, multidisciplinary liver team. And, you know, I just want to mention, we actually meet weekly. We have our own separate um, conference just for liver cancer. And there's such a great group of people. Um, we work with the surgeons, the transplant surgeons, the hepatologists, um, the interventional radiologists that treat a lot of the um, local disease. Um, you know, there's oncologists. Um, we, um, we really have a great group that um, focuses on all aspects of treatment. Um, you know, my focus as an oncologist is really more in patients who are not candidates for these, um, you know, curative intent treatments like transplant or surgery. Um, for patients with local disease where the disease is still confined to the liver, Um, and there's not more than a a few separate tumors, the interventional radiologists have really played a large role in treating those patients. Um, And they treat with a wide variety of modalities, um, 
where they could apply some chemotherapy or heat or cold or, you know, they do ablation techniques. Um, and then at some point, you know, either because someone's developing more tumors or if there's any metastatic disease, meaning tumor has, has left the liver, then we really focus on what we call systemic therapies. So uh, either the treatment is a pill form or intravenous form, um, but but then the drugs right are absorbed in the body and go everywhere. And I have to say, over the time that I've been at Yale in the last 10 years, um, it, we have made tremendous strides in the last few years in having more treatment options that are more effective for liver cancer. So that's been really exciting. So tell us more about those developments. I mean, for many people, the concept of chemotherapy is really scary. Um, But you mentioned that some of these therapies that you give um, actually can be oral. Yeah. So, you know, the first drug that actually showed a benefit in helping people live longer with liver cancer is a drug called serafinib. And that's actually a pill form of treatment. It's not really traditional chemotherapy. It's something called, we call them TKIs or tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So it's more targeted therapy. Um, And while serafinib had some benefit, we all recognized that it wasn't enough. And then if patients didn't really tolerate serafinib or then their cancer started to grow again, you know, there were many years where we really didn't have other good treatment options. And then in the last few years, there's been a lot of success in both finding more of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors um, that are more effective um, potentially than serafinib or can be given after serafinib. Um, And then the other area that's been um, really exciting has been the use of immune therapy in liver cancer. So I want to dig into both of those uh, kind of arms of the equation. First, you know, when we talk about tyrosine kinase inhibitors, um, you know, sometimes that, that that's very similar to what we talk about in breast cancer. For example, many of our listeners may know about HER2 um, and and the fact that we can have a targeted agent against HER2 um, that, that can be very effective. So with these tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, in liver cancer, are there particular receptors that you're going after? So are there markers that you can look at a cancer and say, aha, Mrs. Jones's cancer has this particular receptor and I have a drug that can target that? So that's a really good question because, so there's a few things that you kind of asked that I want to address. So one is, do we have a biomarker, which really means, is there some way from the patient that I'm treating, either from their blood work or something from their, from their biopsy that I could identify that would predict, um, whether they would respond to treatment or not. And unfortunately, the answer is we really don't have a biomarker um, for liver cancer the way that we could test, you know, HER2 expression in breast cancer or other cancers and say this drug is more likely to work. Um, You know, we do follow something called the AFP, the alpha fetal protein. And in about 80% of liver cancers, that protein is made. And so the value of it. And it going up or down gives you a sense of response, but it doesn't actually predict what drug you would respond to. There is a real need for finding a biomarker that would predict response to any particular drug. But the truth is we don't have one. And so we really are giving these drugs um, without 
really knowing who it is that is going to respond or not. And we're, and we're trying, you know, sequences of drugs. Um, I wish we did have a biomarker. There's a lot of interest in, you know, in developing one. When you ask what target are we, you know, hitting with this, with this tyrosine kinase approach, the truth is these are what we call like dirty tyrosine kinases, meaning they don't target just one protein. So one of the proteins they target is something called VEGF, the vascular endothelial growth factor, which is involved in blood vessel formation for the tumors. We do know that that's an important target for liver cancer, but it's not the only one that's targeted by these drugs. So there's there's other um, pathways that are being targeted, and they probably have some role in the benefit of these drugs too. Um, and you know, there's still, I think, a lot more to really understand about how how these drugs work in this cancer. Yeah. So it, it would be it would be nicer if if you could biopsy a tumor and say, aha, this tumor has a very high VEGF level and you have a specific uh, drug that uh, would target that and voila, the cancer magically disappears. Right. But I guess we're a bit far off from that. No, you know, and what's interesting, too, is that in immune therapy, so so there's been so many recent studies looking at the role of different immune therapy drugs in liver cancer. Yeah. And even then, you know, for a lot of cancer. You could check um, something called the PDL1 expression. Right. And by looking at the number of immune cells infiltrating, you know, in the tumor on the biopsy, um, you know, often you could have some kind of sense of prediction of how likely it is someone would respond to immune therapy. But even that for liver cancer has been very unreliable. Um, the, the expression of that protein does not predict um, who will respond to immune therapy either. Interesting. Uh, that 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 really is um, that really is uh, unique. I think for for liver cancer because I know in other cancers we actually do look at that and say, you know what, if, if we see PDL one expression, then then we know that immunotherapy is going to be more effective. So how do you decide who to give immunotherapy to and who to treat with uh, a TKI or with chemotherapy? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, until very recently, the treatment has been a TKI first and then immune therapy. But I want to tell you about um, one of the newest combinations that's been looked at, which is a combination of um, an immune therapy drug called atezolizumab. So that's a what we call a PDL1 antibody, targets the immune system. And then it was given in combination with bevacizumab, which is an antibody against VEGF, which I had just mentioned before. And that combination was actually, um, so we had participated at Yale in the phase one study looking at this. And I will tell you that, um, out of the patients that I had on that study, I actually have two patients who had a complete response to treatment, which was amazing to me. And they are both still doing very well um, with no disease that could be seen on their MRIs, which is um, something that I had never had happened before. So that was really exciting. And the phase one study was, was positive and Based on those results, um, there was a large phase three study, which means so they compared this combination back to um, serafinib, which had been often given, you know, as a first treatment. And they showed that there was a benefit of 
giving this combination immune therapy. And so that just got approved by the FDA a couple of months ago. And wow. for patients who are good candidates for that, which some people may may not be a good candidate for getting that that treatment, either because of the immune therapy part or the or the bevacizumab part, um, that's become the new standard of care to give this combination. We see higher response rates. We see patients have longer responses to treatment. Um, you know, again, we don't have a biomarker to predict who is going to do the best with that combination. But um, this is really this was really a big change in in our practice just in the last few months to think about giving this type of combination to patients before starting with a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, so, you know, we think carefully about each patient um, and certainly, you know, there's other immune therapy drugs to give and, and there still are tyrosine kinase inhibitors to give. But um, the discussion now about how to sequence these treatments has become um much more relevant now, you know, very interesting. There's other studies looking at combination therapies that um, the full data has not been presented yet. It hasn't been published yet, but there's other studies that are um, showing more positive data than just giving a tyrosine kinase inhibitor by itself. And so it, it's just been really exciting. Dr. Stacy Stein is an associate professor of internal medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.